Well, good morning. We are at time, so I think we will begin. Uh, We can open again this morning with any prayer requests. Thank you. Anything else? Okay. I will begin our prayer time this morning with Psalm 25. We are going to repeat verses 11 to 15 because, again, the, the theme of that psalm and what we look at this morning have a good deal of overlap. And it is just a good prayer to begin with. So Psalm 25, verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord... Pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him he will instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Father in heaven, we do come to you as your servants, humbled by the knowledge of our own sin, and yet lifted up because we know what you have done for us. And so we thank you for the forgiveness of sin, that you have pardoned our guilt. We come to you as those who fear you, and we ask that you would guide us in good instruction, that we would know the way that we ought to choose. We thank you for the writing that we have in your Bible. We thank you especially this hour for what you gave Moses so long ago, that we may today listen to it and learn and be instructed by it, and we pray that you would guide us in this way, that we may grow in our understanding and in our doing. We pray as well for this Bible study on the colony. We ask that you would strengthen those who gather there, that they would be given discernment and wisdom to be able to follow good and true and right teaching. We pray that your spirit would be active in transforming and renewing their minds. And we pray for those on the colony who look on suspicion with this. We understand why they do. But we pray that where your word would be present and believed, that there would be no opposition, that will overcome it. And so we pray for your strength to be given especially to those who gather for that study and reasonableness to those who uh, do not we pray once more for your blessing over our time would you guide us in instruction this morning 
And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we left off last week at Deuteronomy 3, verse 8. Ordinarily, I would engage in a little bit of review, but the text does that for us this morning. So I will uh, get right to the point here. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 8 through 11. This is Moses' summary of what we looked at last week. So Deuteronomy 3, starting in verse 8 and going through verse 11. So he took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, from the valley of Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians called Hermon Syrian, while the Amorites call it Sinir. And just a little, that is a parenthetical statement in the text. I'll make my own parenthetical statement here. Uh, Psalm 29, verse 6. Uh, Why, Syrian, do you buck like a young calf? That is a reference to Mount Hermon using the Sidonian name for it. So when there's an odd name in the text, sometimes it's helpful to do a word search. And you'll be surprised where it pops up in the Psalms. And so it will actually help us understand the psalm that we're reading a little bit better as well. That's my own parenthetical comment. Let's move on with verse 10. All the cities of the tableland, this is the land that they took, all the cities of the tableland, and all Gilead, and all Bashan, as far as Selica and Adrei, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. Now one more parenthetical statement in the text. For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Let's not be so hasty to uh, be a literalist with the text that we assume that he was the last one in existence. Um, he was the last one that they fought, at least in this portion of the land, perhaps. Uh, but that is a little bit different than no more Rephaim, or no more people being considered to be Rephaim on the face of the earth. Uh, simply the last one that they dealt with on the eastern side of the Jordan. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length, and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. I have no idea why it was in the land of the Ammonites, nor does anyone else, so let's not even ask. So this is a summary of Israel's conquest of the land of the Ammonites on the eastern side of the Jordan. Unique to this section, though, is verse 11, this little statement about Og, king of Bashan, and the impressive size he was. His bed would have been roughly 13 feet by 6 feet. If you have a king-size bed, that is roughly 6 feet. Uh, That was the, the width of his bed alone. Uh, This is not a California king bed. This is a Rephaim king bed. Uh, Defeating this king and his kingdom is the greatest accomplishment that the Israelites have achieved up to this point in their history. So one of the most intimidating aspects of what we might call the conquest for the Israelites took place under the leadership of Moses. Now, ever since chapter 2, verse 17, all the way through chapter 3, verse 7, where we left off last week, all of that has been Moses' pastoral reflection 
on this generation's recent battle experiences. He's telling them what they already know, and not only that they know, he's telling them what they have recently lived. Why spill so much breath and ink telling people what they already know? It's told simply to inspire confidence in God's people. First, that God is the God who fights for them, just as he always has been. So if we were to go back to chapter 1, verse 30, Moses is recounting Israel at Kadesh Barnea after the Lord tells them, I want you to go northward, penetrate into the land of Canaan, and start defeating the people who live there. Israel says, no. Moses comes back with a rebuttal. Chapter 1, verse 30 is Moses' rebuttal to the people's refusal. Chapter 1, verse 30. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Moses' reflection over Israel's conquest of the Amorites east of the Jordan are intended to show that God is completely unchanged in his intentions and his plans for the people of Israel. So, speaking to the former generation, God is the God who fights for you. Well, this more than a chapter-long reflection on Israel's recent events is the illustration that, yes, God is indeed the one who actually fights for you. He's accomplished all of this, All that remains to be seen now is who will receive the reward for faithful obedience. The Lord works out his purposes. Who is going to be the beneficiary of that? Only those who are faithful in obeying the Lord. So, one more encouragement perhaps we could draw from this is if the Lord has done this where he has not promised to do it, how much more where he has? Remember, we've talked about the ambiguity of the land on the eastern side of the Jordan River. That, always, that land is never within the promised land. And in fact, going forward, even when Ezekiel gives his grand vision of the land of promise, the land of Og and Sihon, that's not in the vision. The promised land, the idealized land of Israel, is always beginning on the west side of the Jordan River. So the Lord, in essence, never promised Israel until they got there that he was going to enable them to defeat them, nor did he ever uh, command Israel to dispossess these people until they actually got there. So if the Lord does it on the spur of the moment, we might say, how much more where he has had in place a promise for almost 500 years to cause Israel to inherit the land? If he's done it where he hasn't promised, how much more will he do it where he has promised? And not only that, the most powerful of human enemies cannot stand in the Lord's way. Og, this uh, great testimony to the greatness of Og, now stands as a memorial to his defeat at the hands of the Lord and his army. So Moses draws all of that together uh, simply to encourage the people of Israel before they actually go into the land of Canaan. The Lord's plans are unchanged. The Lord's might is unchanged. And his command to you is unchanged. Go therefore in confidence. And that's where he will go very quickly. Next to verses 12 to 17. This is a summary of what Israel did with the land. 
So verses 8 to 11 are a summary of their conquest, uh, their taking of the land. What now do they do with the land once they have it? That is what Moses summarizes in verses 12 to 17. Now it is not mentioned here, but upon request, Moses gave this land to Reuben and Gad. Let's jump back to Numbers 32 real quick. We'll come here a couple different times. I hope your eyes don't roll over when we hear the word numbers. Uh, that We're going there for a reference. Much of that book is narrative. Um, rather engaging if we spend the time in it. Numbers 32, we will read verses 1 to 5. So this is the narrative of what Moses will summarize in Deuteronomy. Now the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock. And they saw the land of Jazir and the land of Gilead, which is what they had just conquered. And behold, the place was a place for livestock. So the people of Gad and the people of Reuben came and said to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the chiefs of the congregation, Adaroth, Dibon, Jezir, Nimrod, Heshbon, Elelah, Seba, Nebo, and Beon, the land that the Lord struck down before the congregation of Israel, is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. And they said, If we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. Now what's interesting is the half-tribe of Manasseh also receives land on this side of the Jordan. We'll come to that briefly. Manasseh is not even mentioned in the account of Numbers until almost the end of the chapter. So Reuben and Gad take the initiative to ask Moses for this land. So Moses deals first with the summary of the territory. So chapter 3 of Deuteronomy, keep a finger in Numbers 32. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 3, verse 12. Moses says, When we took possession of this land at that time, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory beginning at Aroer, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities. Let's jump down to verse 16. And to the Reubenites and the Gadites I gave the territory from Gilead as far as the valley of the Arnon, with the middle of the valley as a border, as far over as the river Jabbok, the border of the Ammonites. The Arabah also with the Jordan as the border, from, from Chinneroth as far as the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, under the slopes of Pishka to the east. I'd like to unknot that for you just a little bit. There are a lot of names there that might be unfamiliar Let's walk through that very quickly. And if you have uh, the map that we've been looking at recently, that might be helpful. But particularly, uh, I will read the text to you, and you can look at the map again, and I'll make a few explanatory comments as I reread the text. So starting in verse 16, To the Reubenites and the Gadites I gave the territory from Gilead as far as the valley of Arnon with the middle of the valley as a border, as far as the river Jabbok. So Gilead is a territory of land, which is ambiguous as to what it refers to, and it depends on where you are. 
Uh, here, look at what I have written on the map. I think it's the second map. Uh, it says Sihon and the Amorites in one color and Gilead in another color. So that's Gilead. The Valley of Arnon, the Valley of the Jabbok are two geographical uh, boundary points, both being valleys. And the Jabbok goes all the way to the border of the Amorites. And now here in verse 17, the Arabah, which is the rift valley that goes all the way from the Sea of Galilee down to the Red Sea, with the Jordan as the border, which means they do not go west of the Jordan, the Jordan is where their territory stops, from Chinnereth, Chinnereth is an old name for the Sea of Galilee. Uh, so uh, Chinnereth was a town that was on the Sea of Galilee, so its old name was the Sea of Chinnereth, later became known as the Sea of Galilee. As far as the Sea of the Areba, which is the Salt Sea, or the Dead Sea, under the slopes of Pishgah on the east. So the slopes of Pishgah are east of the Salt Sea, and that's roughly where uh, Israel is at the time of this address. So they are currently in the territory of Reuben and Gad. I won't uh, go through any more detail with those things right now, but what of the rest of the land, particularly the land north of this that they conquered? Let's go back now in Deuteronomy 3 to verse 13 where he deals with the rest of the land. So starting in verse 13, the rest of Gilead, which is the northern section of Gilead, and all Bashan, this is the kingdom of Og, that is all the region of the Argob. Now the Argob was most likely a very fertile stretch of land somewhere within Og's territory. It's a little ambiguous, but just imagine a, a very lush place uh, for cropping and grazing. That is, all the region of the Argob, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh, all the portion of Bashan that is called the land of Rephaim. Now let's pause there for one second and go back to Numbers 32. In Numbers 32, there was a little comment made in verse... That is very easy to miss. Numbers 32, verse 4. This land that Reuben and Gad are asking for to graze their cattle, they refer to it as the land that the Lord struck down before the congregation of Israel. The whole lot of God's people were involved in taking the land that was eventually apportioned to Reuben and Gad. So you might say it this way. Reuben and Gad ask for their land out of the pot. Manasseh is not mentioned as having asked for land on this side of the Jordan, yet they are given land on this side of the Jordan. Why is that? Deuteronomy 3, verse 14 gives that explanation. So back again to Deuteronomy 3, starting in verse 14. Jer, the Manassite, so here we're dealing with Manasseh, took all the region of Argob, that is Bashan, 
as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Maakathites, and called the villages after his own name, Havath-Jar, as it is to this day. To Makir I gave Gilead, and then we already looked at verse 16. So it appears as though those from Manasseh who received land on this side of the Jordan fought for it personally. That is, those from Manasseh took the initiative, they went up by their families, and they conquered land, and therefore we might say they earned it. Whereas, so, whereas Reuben and Gad asked for land out of the communal pot, the Manassites didn't. And they become, in Deuteronomy, already a sort of paradigm for what ultimate faithfulness to the Lord looks like in terms of conquering the land. And so they don't ask for their land per se. They conquer their land, which is land that the Lord said uh, earlier on that he would give to them once they, once they got there. So Manasseh has multiple descendants. One of those descendants' names is Jer, and he conquered the land that he got, which is the Argob in verse 14. And then he calls the villages after his own name. And then Makir, verse 15, to Makir I gave Gilead. Makir is also a descendant of Manasseh, I believe a great-great-grandson who would have certainly been dead at this point. In fact, Jair is either a great is either a grandson or a great-grandson of Makir. So the line has gone down a long time. Remember, Manasseh died a long time ago, hundreds of years ago, he died. So these are all descendants of uh, not sons of Manasseh, but descendants of Manasseh. And Makir represents a family or a clan descended from Manasseh who took over this land. So there, there are many descendants of Manasseh, and here are two of them by name who are singled out for having uh, taken the land that they end up inheriting, which is to be an example for the rest of Israel. Questions or comments through everything we've covered this morning, up through verse 17 of chapter 3. Very well. Let's move on. 18 to 20. Chapter 3, verses 18 to 20. And I commanded you at that time, the you is in reference to the western tribes, to Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over, armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I have given you until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you, and they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession, which I have given you. So here Moses gives instructions for the western tribes. Uh, he told them, he's recounting this now, he's remembering it. He's not just giving them the first command. He actually did that back in Numbers 32. One of the things that happens when Reuben and Gad ask for land is Moses gets very angry very quickly. And he says, uh, and he bases it off of, don't take us across the Jordan. That's how verse 5 of chapter 32 ended. Don't take us across the Jordan. Moses' anger flares. 
Because he says, you're going to dishearten the rest of the Israelites. Why are you cowards not going across the Jordan? And they say, no, no, we just want this land because it's good for our cattle. We will go with the rest of the Israelites and cross. And so Moses commands them. Then you take your armed men and you cross the Jordan and you go and fight. And here he's remembering it. And so even though Reuben and Gad and half of Manasseh have their land, they're to go with the rest of the Israelites uh, to fight in the land of Canaan. And he does so in an attempt to maintain the unity of the people of Israel. Unity both theologically, but simply pragmatically and relationally as well. Notice how Moses references these people in verse 18. And I commanded you at that time saying, The Lord your God. The your is in reference to the two and a half tribes. He calls them, he references the Lord as the Lord of Reuben and Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh. He has given this land to you to possess. But then he goes on in verse 20, until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you, and they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives to them beyond the Jordan. So Moses is trying to maintain unity by saying, the Lord who has done good things for you is the same Lord who does good things for them. Therefore, be united with them. And the same thing that the Lord is driving toward for both the east and the west is rest. So the same works that the work, Lord has worked for you are the same works the Lord will work for them. And you are to consider them your brothers, not just because you share a genetic tree back there somewhere. It is because you share the same God. That is what ought to keep you two united. After they do that, they are free to go home. Now, one more thing I'll mention, just because I can't not mention it. Reuben and Gad asked for this land because it was land fitting to their economic condition. This is a land for grazing cattle. And guess what? We have cattle. Can we have this land? That's an entirely reasonable thing to ask for, isn't it? Um, and, and it really is. The request seems very reasonable. But notice that that request lies outside the realm of promise. It lies within the realm of permission, but it lies outside the realm of promise. Now consider the history that follows. It is a difficult history. Before the conquest is completed, there is almost civil war between the eastern and the western tribes. When it comes to idolatry and when it comes to war, the western tribes are always the first to get picked off. When it comes to who do we have a share in, do we have a share in the Lord, the eastern tribes find it kind of questionable whether the western side does. Even our reasonable desires create deep chasms between Christians because we ask for things that lie outside the realm of promise and it creates extra work for us 
to maintain the unity that would otherwise come much more naturally. So Moses has to set in place extra commandments, you might say, for the western tribes. Extra warnings have to be put in place for the eastern tribes, all to maintain the unity that would have been natural had the western tribes' request been within the realm of promise instead of merely within the realm of permission. That doesn't mean they were asking for something evil. What it does mean is it required a lot of extra work on everyone's part to maintain what would have otherwise been much more natural. Questions or comments about that before we move on? Yeah, so if you look at the first map I have on there, the, he's talking about borders right hand to left hand, right, right to left. That's what he's talking about. Um, and in that text, there is nothing really mentioned about the depth of the land uh, from the Jordan to the sea. But in other texts, the Jordan to the Mediterranean is what is specifically mentioned. And so it's left a little bit more open and ambiguous in terms of east and west in Genesis 15 than in other texts. Good question. Okay. All right. Verse 21 and 22. Moses turns his attention from giving commands to the western tribes to Joshua in particular. And I commanded Joshua at that time, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. Now one of the fun things that actually happens in the text that we simply do not get in English because of the limitations of our own language is this. And I commanded Joshua at that time, saying, Your eyes, you, Joshua, singular, you, your eyes, have seen all which the Lord, your God, plural, your, plural, your God, has done to these two kings, so he will do to the kingdoms which you, crossing over there to possess, that is singular, you shall not fear them. Is not a singular command, that is a plural command. Y'all shall not fear, because Yahweh, your God, is the one fighting on behalf of y'all. He alternates between the singular and the plural. He's commanding Joshua, but as he commands Joshua, he commands all the people. This is sort of the climax of Moses' historical reflections. Based on everything we've seen, what is the takeaway? Do not fear the Canaanites. Obey the Lord. Follow the Lord. Trust the Lord who will do there everything he has done here. So this is, this is one of the, as, as we read the text, this is perhaps one of the things we ought to remember. What we see happen in Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, sets the paradigm for what is to happen on the western side of the Jordan. 
Take over the land. Divide the land. Devote everyone to destruction. Men, women, children, everyone dies so that you don't make a covenant with them and so that you're not lured into worshiping their gods. After that's done, divide out the land as is appropriate. Moses sets the paradigm for Joshua and the people of Israel to follow. And that is important. Um, Moses points to Israel's past for the signposts of how she is supposed to live in the future, not based simply on Israel's work alone, but on the Lord's work. So Moses here sets the direction for Israel, not just by exposition, which is what he's coming to here in chapter 4, but by example as well. Moses shows Israel how to live, not just in word, but also in deed, And he does that based on the claim that the Lord will do just as he has done in the past. Therefore, courageously face the oncoming enemy. Questions or thoughts over those sections? Okay. Verses 23 to 28. Last, Moses turns his attention once again to his own relationship to the Lord. And just so we can get a good handle on what's happening here, I'll read the whole thing uh, once more. Moses says, And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, Enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pishka and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over the head of this, at the head of this people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. We'll wait with verse 29 for a minute. The fact that Moses was unable to see the climax of God's work in giving Israel the land of promise is probably one of the most tragic things in all of the Old Testament. Um, Moses doesn't make it in. And here he pleads passionately with the Lord that the Lord would change his mind and let him in. And so he makes one last-ditch effort to try and um, bank on the Lord's mercy to let him cross over the Jordan. He makes his appeal based on the fact that he has only begun to see what the Lord is going to do for the people of Israel, which is quite the claim to make, right? I've seen Egypt. I've seen you care for the people throughout the wilderness. I've seen you deliver the law. I've seen you descend on the mount. I've communed with you in smoke and fire. I've spoken to you in the cloud, face to face, as it were. I've seen you wipe out kings and kingdoms. I've seen you care for people with nothing for 40 years. I've only begun to see what you're about to do. That's how he he bases his appeal um, and says, I want to see more. 
I haven't had enough of seeing what you can do. That is a good argument, right? I've only begun to see, I want more. I want to see more of what you can do. And he bases his appeal off of, I've gotten a taste of the Lord's glory and I want more of it. That is a wise place to be. Moses recognizes of himself that God has dedicated Moses' life to promoting the glory of God. You've only begun to show your glory. My task has been to promote your glory. This is a match. Let me go, right? And, and look at how he does that in verse 24. O Lord Yahweh, you have caused to begin to show your servant your greatness in your strong hand. You have committed me to this course. I have been committed to this course. Let me go. But, he says, the Lord's anger continued. But the Lord was angry with me on your account. Now, this is clearly not the same as eternal unforgiveness. Moses' death is, at the very least, a vindication of his life and his place as being God's man. But what it does is it illustrates for us that there are some facts. Or there, there, it illustrates for us the fact that there are some sins that the Lord pardons for us in such a way as to limit the temporal consequences of those sins, right? How many of you can think back in your own life and say, I should be paying more for my past sin than I really am right now. The Lord has been kind to me. There have been things that have happened in my life which should have created so much more trouble for me than I have right now. There are some sins the Lord forgives in that sort of way. And there are some sins that the Lord doesn't forgive in that sort of way. There are some sins that we pay for for the rest of our lives. And the limp we have now is a consequence of our stupidity and folly at an earlier time. It doesn't mean we're not forgiven for those sins. But it does mean that there are temporal consequences that the Lord attaches to those sins that never really leave us. Moses is limping with one of those right here, right? When he says, the Lord was angry with me, he doesn't mean that the Lord was still having his fit. That's not what he means. What he means is the Lord has not released me from the temporal consequences of this, and it's your fault, Israelites, uh, that the Lord hasn't. Um, now, part of that might be Moses simply venting against his people, I don't think that that's entirely what's going on here. There might be a twinge of that. Um, one of my favorite commentators, Daniel Block, uh, says that this is kind of disappointing uh, to see Moses do this. Um, but there's more in the text than simply that, I think. Moses' public sins receive a public admonition. This is the first thing to remember. Moses' public sins properly received public admonition. So back in Numbers 20, when all this began... Numbers 20, verses 12 to 13. Here, here's where the rub really comes with Moses. Numbers 20, verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you do not believe in me, 
to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given to them. Now, this isn't the only time Moses didn't believe the Lord, right? When the people grumbled for meat and the Lord said, I'll give them meat. And Moses says, how in the world are you going to do that? Right? That is, that is disbelief in the Lord. The difference is, Moses did that in the privacy of the tent of meeting. No one else heard that conversation, and the Lord was pretty patient with Moses. He said, no, I'll show you. It was, was basically the Lord's response. Here, though, you did not uphold me as holy before the eyes of all the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land I've given them. So on, on one account, we can simply say this. The Lord will sometimes publicly admonish us for our public sins. The whole congregation saw Moses do this. The whole congregation will see Moses not make it in as an example. So when it says, the Lord was angry with me on your account, the your account is not only a blame of disadvantage, it is a blame of advantage as well. Which is, this is to your advantage. The Lord was angry with me to your advantage. He didn't let me in so that you might be benefited by seeing the Lord punish even me, even Moses, as the one who won't make it in. Second, God holds those who lead to higher standards, right? James 3 1, not many of you should be desired, not many of you should desire to be teachers because we will be held to higher account. So all that to say there is irony in the phrase on your account. Uh, so uh, not only that, uh, there is grace. In spite of the punishment, there is a lot of grace that bleeds through. We've mentioned in previous weeks uh, the grace of Deuteronomy itself. The reason this book is delivered is because Moses doesn't make it into the land of promise. And so he gives these great addresses, these great sermons, as a grace to the people of Israel Certainly, as a grace to us, 1 Corinthians 10.11, these things are written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come so that we will not desire evil as they did. So there is grace towards us, there is grace towards the Israelites, and there is grace toward Moses. There are three commands given Moses. Let's look at verse 27. The Lord says, Ascend to the top of Pishka, Lift up your eyes to the west, the north, the south, and east, and see with your eyes. So there are three commands. Those commands feel like they're given kind of abruptly and tersely, but those are commands of grace. The Lord says, no, you will not make it in, but I will give you a consolation prize. And that consolation prize is I'm going to give you the view of all of that land. And if you've ever been to that part of the world, you will know that that is a grace because about 364 days out of 365, it's so hazy you can't see anything, right? Now you can, from where Moses was, he could see across the Jordan. He'd be able to see some hills, but the haze is so thick you just can't see that much. So if he really is to have a view of all of this land, which is possible, uh, it takes uh, a clearing. Uh, and no doubt the Lord did that for Moses. So three commands to Moses. And once again, uh, three commands on behalf of the people of Israel who are partially to blame for Moses' failure. Verse 21. I'm sorry, end of verse 
28. Verse 28. And command Joshua and strengthen him and harden him. I use that word intentionally. We'll come to it in a moment. So the three commands for continued grace for the people of Israel is replacement of leadership. God is not going to leave his people without a shepherd. Moses, though, has to be the one to train his own replacement to receive the great prize. If you want to know how great Moses' faithfulness was, how committed his resolve was to the glory of the Lord, even when he is forbidden to receive the prize, and he is told to train his replacement who will receive that prize, he does it faithfully. He does it completely, and he does it without complaining. That's quite remarkable. And he continues to pastor this bickering people. But as for Joshua, command Joshua, strengthen him, and I say harden him. The third commandment there, uh, the ESV has it different, encourage and strengthen him. I put strengthen first, harden second, because the word that occurs there is the same word that occurs in Deuteronomy 2, verse 30. Let's go to Deuteronomy 2, verse 30. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him, for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate. The word that occurs for Joshua is the same word that occurs in Deuteronomy 2, verse 30. When it says, make firm his heart. So when it says, verse 30, got a lot of things going on here. The Lord hardened his spirit. When it says the Lord hardened his spirit, Moses is to harden Joshua. Strengthen him and harden him. I point that out simply to to draw this point. Moses is to strengthen Joshua's resolve to be the one to lead the people of Israel. Just as the Lord strengthened the resolve of Sihon to fight against the people of Israel. So when we read that the Lord strengthened, uh, when he hardened uh, Sihon's heart, we shouldn't think that Sihon really had an ambitions of doing something different than he did. No. The Lord gave him the strength to go in the course that he had chosen to go. Here Moses is to strengthen Joshua in the course that Joshua had planned to go. Moses is to encourage him, strengthen him, make his heart hard so that he'll go on in this direction of glorifying the Lord. So a hard heart uh, can actually go in two directions. We can be stubbornly for the Lord and we can be stubbornly against the Lord. Typically it's used in the negative sense, um, but can also metaphorically go the other way. Questions or comments before we get to chapter 4? Yes, yes. So there, there's primarily three or four verbs that are used in terms of be strong and courageous, uh, do not be in fear or in dread of them. 
uh, those sorts of things, they are almost all directed toward Joshua and the people of Israel uh, between Moses' foreseen retirement and Israel's entrance into the land of Canaan. Uh, A lot of them are directed towards Joshua. Moses says those things to Joshua. The Lord says those things to Joshua. Moses says those things to the people. Joshua says those things to the people. There may even be a case where the Lord says those commands to the people, but it's all in reference to the intimidating task of going over the land of Jordan without Moses at the head. Um, So yeah, they they all stem roughly from that. Good. Anything else? Okay. We will step toe into chapter 4 this morning then. Chapter 4, I missed verse 29 of chapter 3. Moses completes his historical reflection. Chapter 3, verse 29. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. That is where Moses and the Israelites currently are. So he, he brought them up to speed through their history, up to where they are now. He left a lot of things out. Some things he'll mention here uh, coming up. But most of this was simply a pastoral reflection, encouraging them to learn the lessons from what they have seen and experienced in the past. Now in chapter 4, he still thinks about the past, but his sights are primarily set toward the future, the present and the future. So he begins his pastoral exhortation based on all of those things. What now therefore shall you do going forward? Chapter 4, verse 1. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live And go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. This is the first time in the book of Deuteronomy that the Lord, that Moses gives a command to the people of Israel, and it is listen. Listen, O Israel. Why start? There, Of all of the things that Moses could direct his people to do, why does it begin with listen? First, they should be lured into listening. God has displayed his power and his life-giving intentions for the Israelites. And this is the proper response to someone who has shown them incomparable power working on their behalf. Now, let's say hypothetically... Elon Musk walked in here and said, I've got a lot of money, and I want to spend it on you. But this is what you have to do in order for me to spend it on you. Would you pay attention to what it is that you have to do for him to get to spend his wad of cash on you? No. Your ears would perk up. I have $100 million. That's that's just a drop in the bucket. I want to give to you, but you have to do this. We'd pay attention to what this is is. Moses is doing the same thing here. The Lord has done all of these things for you, and he has more than that planned for you. Therefore, listen to him. Second, they, uh, God has removed them from the darkness of Egypt and brought them into the light of the covenant. And there are a couple of things here. First, there is a great privilege here. The surrounding cultures around Israel knew 
two things. Well, three things. They knew the gods were more powerful than they were. And they knew they had offended the gods. And they knew that life was difficult because the gods made life difficult for them. That's, that's their understanding of the world. So as, as the peoples around Israel looked at the world, they were convinced there are a lot of gods who are emotional. I've done something to offend someone, but I don't know what I've done. I don't know which god is upset with me. I don't know why that god or those gods are upset with me, and I don't know how to fix it. So if you've ever talked to someone who's been engaged in uh, foreign missions in an what we would call an unreached part of the world, they talk about this. They, they talk about how fearful these people are. In fact, if you ever have a chance, next time Brian Hofer is up, talk to him for a few hours about the way the people in that part of Africa view the world. It's just like that. There are strange forces around us that we don't understand. We know they're there because the gods are angry with us, but we're not sure what to do about it. And so we do a thousand different things to try and appease these gods, not certain if any one of them is going to work. Well, Israel has an entirely unique position. There is one God for Israel to pay attention to, and they know exactly what to do. They know what their offense is. They know why he's upset. They know that he's done gracious things for them, that he's even taken the initiative to do gracious things for them. And they know how to live in a way that is pleasing to that God. That is a remarkable privilege to have. Now, we don't attribute our poor fate to the anger of the gods. Kind of a pity we don't, in some respects. But we know God. We know how to live with God and how to live in a way that is pleasing to him. It's a tremendous privilege. Second, they are obligated to listen. We could go to Colossians 1.13. The Lord has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. Uh, They've been transferred from the darkness of the kingdom of Egypt to the light of his own kingdom. The Lord has made them and redeemed them. Therefore, they are to listen. So they have both a privilege to listen and an obligation to listen. And what does listening lead to? Three results. That you may live, so Deuteronomy 4 verse 1, that you may live and you may enter and take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Listening is the foundation for life and land because those things are not fought for and won by Israel's wisdom or prowess, they are given. Life is given, land is given. The Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. And it is a blessing that is given to those who listen to their covenant Lord. The Israelites are supposed to listen to the Lord like their lives depend on it. Because they do. Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 to 20. The sermons that could be preached over this one verse are just remarkable. Lloyd-Jones would have a field day. But Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 to 20. This is, uh, we're we're not going to get to Deuteronomy 30 for quite some time. It won't be this year. I'll clue you in. Uh, 
But Deuteronomy 30, verse 15, this is kind of Moses's, he's beginning to summarize now his whole address. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. We'll just stop there for time. Israel is to listen like her life depends upon it because it does. That is how important listening is. And what is Israel to listen to? Listen to the statutes and the rules. Now, I want to add this. Israel is first to listen to what the Lord has done. I don't get that because of Deuteronomy 4, verse 1. I get that because of context. What is the first three chapters spent on? What the Lord has done. Moses is addressing the Israelites. This is what the Lord has done for you. Then he moves on to your proper response is to listen. Listening is the first aspect or first act of our activity of following the Lord. So uh, statutes and rules come on the heels of what it is the Lord has done. Now we are hard-pressed for time. I'm actually going to drop it here. We're going to pick it up right here, though, next week because it's that important, I think. Um, so we'll come back to Deuteronomy 4, verse 1. But any questions or comments over how far we've gotten today?